in uh, Exodus chapter 35 tonight, so open your Bibles there. We're going to look at two chapters because the last five chapters that we'll be covering in the book of Exodus really have to do with the construction of the tabernacle. And we've already covered all the different aspects, but we're going to kind of cover it again. God really wants uh, this record to be here. These last five chapters in the book of Exodus really are all about just constructing the tabernacle, which really ties together the whole theme, uh, theme I should say, of, of the book of Exodus here. The purpose of the books is really about God's redeeming his people. Remember, they were 400 years as slaves in Egypt. So this story is about God redeeming his people so that he could live in their midst. It's always been God's heart to live with his people. But sin has separated us from God. And it was sin that separated the 12 sons of Israel, Jacob, Jacob's sons, separated them. We went through the book of Genesis, then we came to the book of Exodus. So if you've been here on Wednesday night over the last couple of years, you've, you've got a great uh, Bible education and, and understanding of these Old Testament books. But this book's theme is redeeming God's people. So here we have the tabernacle, which represents the presence of God within this group of people, the two million Israelites there at the bottom of, of uh, Mount Sinai. And as they're there, God has been giving instruction. And all this instruction now is coming to fruition. These chapters are all about the construction now uh, of the temple. So that's what we're going to look at. We'll go quickly through these verses. There's some really interesting application as well. And we'll stop to uh, look at. But let's ask God's blessing. Let's pray together. Father, how grateful we are for the word and how powerful the story is. Uh, Lord, your strong arm delivering your people, using your servant Moses, who becomes a type of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, who obeyed and, and became a mediator and, and did out of obedience, just as Jesus came out of obedience to the Father, dying in our place on the cross. So here in the book of Exodus, we're seeing deliverance comes through the mediator Moses as he delivers the people of God through these various miracles that you do, Father. What a, a blessing this book is. I pray that you would uh, continue to teach us. And, and even though we're off next week with the outreach that we're going to be doing, this community outreach to the to the many uh, neighborhood children that will come to hear the gospel. I, I just pray, Lord, that, that as we look forward to finishing this book, that you would keep our interest and uh, help us to learn, even tonight, Lord, in these two chapters. So open our minds this evening to your truth, we pray in Jesus. Amen. Amen. So here we are here in, in this section, but I, I would like to say a couple of things about this section. One, one of the things you notice in this section is the repetition. We've already been introduced to the architect, Betzelau, and we're going to see him again tonight, the uh, special builders, the artisans, and now they're going to put all the things that God had told them back in chapters 25 through 31 uh, into practice as they're building the the temple. Remember, the people are stiff-necked. The people are disobedient. And so this chapter, really, we turn the page in terms of their stiffness because we're going to see a generous people now obeying God. God's threatened them. He said, I'm not going to be with you. And Moses, remember, interceded 
And so God will be with them, but they've got to be obedient. That's the key. And we're going to see that obedience in the building or construction uh, of the temple. But the lesson for us as we go through the book of Exodus, even with the, the, the rebellious people, God will get his will accomplished. And I find that to be very reassuring because as I read the Bible and I read prophecy, I believe that God is going to fulfill everything he said, every word. And so it gives me hope in a world that's sometimes hopeless. We're living in in real dangerous times. I mean, we've always had uh, our enemy, Satan, stirring up things. There's always been war. There's always been turmoil in our nation. And yet, I see it escalating before the Lord comes, and we're told about that. But I do know this for sure, that God will carry out every promise to the letter. And we see that happening here. He wants to be with his people. He's going to carry it out. Even though they're stiff-necked and rebellious, he's going to bring them uh, together. But this chapter starts in a real interesting place. It starts with this this whole concept that God has instituted from the very first in the book of Genesis, and that's the Sabbath rest, that God created in six days, and then he created a special day to rest, to worship him. And that theme has carried from the very beginning. In Genesis, we've seen it again in Exodus chapter 20, when the fourth commandment was given to the people. The fourth commandment was Remember the Sabbath? Keep that day holy. In other words, honor me on the Sabbath. Take a day of rest. Don't work seven days. God has created you and I to have one day of rest every week. And we're to do that. We're to take that rest. And so that theme carries over here as we come to uh, the required Sabbath in verse 1 here of chapter 35. Notice the required Sabbath. Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together. So two million people. There's this big, big group of people. They're all going to hear this. And he said, these are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days. This is really interesting because the tabernacle is not built. It's going to get built. We're going to see people give to it. But he begins this way. This is very important to God. God stressed this to Moses, and I I don't think you can underscore it enough. This is important. This is the rhythm of life. This is what God wants us to do, and he wants his people to know. Before you get lost in the work of building the tabernacle, I want you to remember the the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. And then whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Serious. God's very serious about the Sabbath. Verse 3, you shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. That's how serious God is. Before construction works on the tabernacle for the Lord, Moses makes sure that the people understand that they are to have rest in the Lord. Very important. He wants them to be connected. He wants them to be close to God while they go through this process of building the tabernacle. Now, the Sabbath day was to be a complete shutdown from the work. And notice he says, you don't even start a fire. I, I want you, and there's a reason for that, because he wants the people to worship him. He wants them to, to rest from their labors so they can worship him. 
so they can think about God, so they can read the scriptures, so they can be together as a family. That's God's intention there. The Sabbath was created by God so that we could rest. That's what the word Sabbath means. And the double B in the Hebrew, I've told you this several times, just emphasizes the word. It's like saying double rest. So he wants us to have rest and worship on one day a week. We're to remember God. That's what separated these people from all of the nations around them. It was the Sabbath rest. That would make them different. When another person came from another culture and they came into town on the Sabbath day, how come the stores are closed? How come everybody's at home? How come nobody's moving around? Because we worship God on this day. It was a testimony to the other nations around them. Here it is in Exodus chapter 20. Here's the law that God gave, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath, a rest of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. So God's people were always to keep the Sabbath holy. What does that mean? What's it mean to keep the Sabbath holy? Well, the, the, first, the first is interesting. When you look at this, this uh, text that I have up on the screen behind me there, that Exodus 20, verse 8, which again, Exodus 20 remembers the Ten Commandments. They're, they're labeled within that text in that chapter, chapter 20. But they're told exactly how to do it. First, if you look at verse 9, I left the little numbers in the text behind me. Verse 9 says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. And then notice, there's two different sides of the Sabbath. There's six days of labor and one day of rest. So there's, the, there's both sides to that Sabbath day. That's God's rhythm that he wants for his people. In other words, God expects his people to work for six days. God expects you to work. Man, work is hard. Yeah, it is. Nobody really super enjoys their work. Well, I, I, mean, I think there's some people that love their job. I love my job. I love my work, but it's work. It's still work. And, and our propensity is to chill, right? It's just to chill and kick back and, and have somebody else do the laundry or the lawn or whatever. But... But God wants us to work for six days. He expects that of us. And he also expects us to, to rest one of those days. We're to rest. And then look at verse 10 behind me on the screen. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. And no one was to work there. And everyone in the household. In other words, as a father, I couldn't say to my 10 kids, uh, you guys clean up. You do the laundry. You go out and clean up after the cattle. You go do the lawn, whatever. You weren't able to, to foister your work on anyone. The whole family, the whole life stopped. That was what rest meant. You couldn't even have your servants do your work or you were really judged. So it was to be a day of rest. Everyone, animals, visitors, little kids, benefited from that day of rest. And then notice at the end of this, oh, it went away. Oh, there it is. God's command in, in verse 11, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So God blessed a day of rest. Now I went into detail when, we taught, when I taught this about how uh, we're not uh, called to 
worship on a specific day. The New Testament never requires you and I as New Testament believers to worship on a certain day. There are those that believe that. They're, they're, they're very legalistic about that day and what they do on that day. In fact, we had Sunday morning. I don't know if you parked your car out, car out front like I do. Somebody stuck these little rolled up pamphlets about, about worshiping on the Sabbath day and how wrong you are if you don't do that. There are people that believe that, that if you worship on any other day but the Sabbath day, which would be Saturday, that you're actually going to H-E double toothpicks. They actually believe that and they teach that. They actually teach that. And we had, you know, I, I, I had the, uh, the elders, or not the elders, the security go out there and grab them. They, they missed them. They, the, the guy snuck in here and he, whoever it was, weaseled and they put their little thing on there. But the, they exist today. But the New Testament is very clear. And I, may, I was very specific on, in that teaching. I won't go into it tonight. But, but the day is to be a day of rest. We're to take one day out of the six that we work and rest and be with the Lord. Now, this message was, again, reiterated. Remember I said in Genesis chapter 3, God establishes this. This isn't new. And then in Exodus chapter 20, his new nation, his new people going into the promised land, they were going to, this is the first thing he wants them to do is to worship him on that one day. Work six days and then one day. So he didn't want the people to get lost in all the building and construction here. He wants them to take a day of rest. Now, in verses 4 through 9 here, the people are asked to willingly give, and I have the caption, voluntary contributions to the Lord, verse 4. And Moses spoke to the congregation of Israel, saying, this is the thing which the Lord commanded. Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord, gold, silver, and bronze, and then fabric. Blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair, verse 7. Ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood. Oil for the light and species or spices, pardon me, for the anointing oil. And for the sweet incense. And then precious stone, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod, the breastplate of the high priest. So again, notice that... Number one, all of Israel is invited to share, to give something. Everyone of every age, uh, rich or poor, anybody could give something, an offering. They're invited to give an offering. In the Hebrew, that's terumah. Terumah is a contribution. Terumah would be a gift. No strings attached. It's just a gift. And that's the way an offering to the Lord is always to be given. Moses explains that Everyone in the congregation has this opportunity to give. Anyone could give. It doesn't matter who they are. But notice in verse 5, an offering to the Lord, whoever is of a willing heart. And that's seen from beyond this uh, verse here. All the way through chapter 35, as they're gathering all the materials for the tabernacle, you'll see this, this willingness to give, this willing heart to give. It's a free will offering. That's what he's talking about here. They're not they are required to, to uh, worship on the Sabbath day, but they're not required to give anything. It has to come from their heart. They have to give it because they love God. They're not compelled to give it. They're not threatened to give it. It's to be a, a willing sacrifice, a, 
a teruah, a contribution or a gift. And again, it speaks a lot about our gifts and our offerings. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But if you look at back to, or forward to verse or chapter 36, go forward to chapter 36, verse 6, real quick, and I'll just read that real fast. We're going to get there tonight, but I want you to, to see how willing and how wonderful giving is. Notice in verse 6 of chapter 36, Moses gave the commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, let neither man or woman do any more work for the offering. And the people were restrained from bringing, for the material that the builders had was sufficient for the work. Indeed, they had too much. They had too much. The people responded. They had so much joy in, be, in knowing now that God is coming back and he's going to be in the camp and the tent is where he was going to be. And they were so excited about giving that they had to tell people to stop giving. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? The application here is, is this is probably the first time in history that's ever happened to somebody that stood up and said, hey, give all. We have this great need. And, and you know, churches are brilliant for that, right? We, we don't do that as much, but... But uh, how often have you heard anyone say, oh, don't, don't give anything. There, there's enough right now. There's plenty. Don't, don't even worry about bringing anything. I mean, I'm always asking you guys to give in relief efforts, and you respond so well. Uh, you give faithfully uh, every month so we can sustain our staff and pay the light bill and have internet and all the things that are expensive. These things are expensive. Water is expensive. The, our electric bill... You know, I don't know, you, you might have a big house and yours is, is high, but our electric bill in the summer is pushing 3000 a month with our services. So, and, and then it goes down. See, it's starting to go down, which, which we're very thankful for. I've been signing a couple checks that T's written out lately, and they're a little bit lower. It's like, thank you, God. But it's expensive to keep things going. You're so, you're so faithful in giving. But it's interesting. There's always some kind of controversial uh, a ministry that's begging for money. You hear about that, and maybe you went to a church uh, that was like that. And then there, on the other side, there are churches that never talk about it. We don't really, I don't talk about it that much. I don't want to be seen that way. I've been asked by people and, and even uh, uh, board members, not for uh, a specific reason, because we've always operated in the black. We don't operate in the red here. We've never operated as long as I've been here, and, and I don't, we're not going to far as I'm concerned. We're not going to do that. But there are churches that do that, and they talk, talk, talk all the time. But I like the way Moses does it here. He speaks to the people and says, you're giving too much. I love that. That's, that's really neat because they have this willing heart. So the truth is the Lord has commanded his people to give freely. He's commanded them to give generously as we go back now to, back to chapter 35. And I just want to say a couple things about giving because this is just an opportunity for me to talk about it. The New Testament tells us that we're to give. It's not an amount. There's no 10%. In the Old Testament, there was a tithe, the temple tax. And you'll see that as you read through the Old Testament. And people ask all the time, Pastor, how much am I supposed to give? I said, you're just supposed to give cheerfully. But, but how much of my gross or my income or my net or is it 10% or is it 50%? It's... I always tell the people the same thing. Look, it's how much of that is yours? How much of that money is yours? The answer is none of it. 
You belong to Christ, and he sustains you with what he brings into your coffers. It's all his. It's not a matter of, well, I'm going to give 10% so I can keep 90. It's a matter of giving to the Lord cheerfully. It's a matter of giving to the Lord generously. It's the Lord's money. We have elders. We have people that count it. I don't even, I don't count it. I see a number at the end of the week. I I know what the total is. That's all I know. I don't know who gives. If you think that I'm impressed by you because you give a lot and you think I know that I, I don't know. So I don't know if you give a little or a lot. Isn't that good? Isn't that the way it should be? So I can minister without any, I can say that you need to give more and look in your eyes, you know, and it doesn't matter because I don't know what you give. But I thank the Lord for the faithful givers of to this ministry. I'm, I'm grateful for that. The truth is, is you and I are stewards. I give. I give generously. I've done it for years. I could have bought a car. I could have bought a boat over and over again. But I choose to invest my money in God's church and allow him to do what he wants. And it's always a blessing. God will bless you. You, you can't outgive God, and he'll always bless you. If you give it cheerfully. Now, if you give it with a now, Lord, I'm going to give you this, but, but you've got to give us back to me. You've got to give us. That's no way to give. It's wrong, actually. Paul says this. Look at the scripture behind me in 2 Corinthians. But this I say, he who sows sparingly, speaking of, of giving, will also reap sparingly. And he who sows cheerfully or bountifully will reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. That's the answer. How much do I give? Each person gives as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves the cheerful giver. God doesn't love the one that gives more, the one that gives less, but just the cheerful giver. The Greek word for cheerful there is an interesting word. You might even recognize it. It is hilaros. Hilaros is the Greek word. We get our word hilarious from. That's what it means. God loves the hilarious, the hilaros giver. That's what he's looking for, your heart, and as you give your money freely. And so that's what God wants to see. The person that gives out of obligation, the person that was told by his parents, you you always give that tithe because if you don't, you know, you're you're ripping off God. The, The person that writes a check out with that kind of guilt over them, I, or I, I write to, and God, God has to keep me well, and they get cancer, and they, I've been giving money to you, God, for years, and they're mad, they're resentful. You have to be really careful. You just give freely, you give generously, you just give it to the Lord, and then you let him do what he wants with your life and with that money. And to hear about missionaries, I talked to our missionary in Papua New Guinea uh, just the other night. He called me, we had a long conversation all share that with the men of the uh, prayer group tomorrow night. So guys, come and I'll tell you that whole story about what's going on with Kevin. But our missionaries are supported by your gifts as well. And if if you expect to get something back, you'll get resentful, you'll get bitter, and then you'll leave the church, and I don't want to give any more money. That's just the wrong way to do it. If you don't want to give, I'm just going to tell you tonight, don't, don't, don't give to this ministry. Because if it makes you resentful or if you think you're going to get something in return, then that's not being a cheerful, hilarious giver. That's the only kind of giver that we're to be. 
Now, having said that, I, again, have found that giving God and his church finances has brought Esther and I joy, has brought us all kinds of things. I could, I'd love to tell you those things, but you'd think that I, you know, just like you might have a story too, but if you say it, somebody might take it wrong, and I just know it's just a blessing to give and that we should be cheerful givers, obedient givers, faithful givers, and that's what these people represent here. The gift was to be voluntary. It was to be also, uh, interestingly, proportionate, meaning that everybody gave something to the building or construction of the tabernacle. Each one gave within their capacity. Some could give uh, gold and silver, but some just gave wood. Did you notice that? Some only had wood. That's all I have. I got wood. And so they were to bring their wood. I mean, isn't that beautiful? God uses everything that people give. And everyone has an ability to bring something to contribute. That's what we're seeing in this, this text. And notice that God, uh, giving to God wasn't limited to finances. It was anything or their ability. So here in verse 10 through 19, again, I'm going to take these larger sections. Every skilled person gave. And they contributed. This is kind of cool. All who are gifted, verse 10, artisans among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded. So all these materials are coming in. So now God calls for the gifted artisans. The tabernacle, its tent, verse 11, its covering, its clasp, its boards, its bars, its pillars, its sockets. The ark and its poles, the furniture, the mercy seat and the veil of covering, the table, its poles, its utensils, and showbread. Also, the lampstand for the light, its utensils, its lamps, and the oil for the light. These are all things that you could bring and contribute in and participate in, building. And then the altar, uh, verse 16, a burnt offering with a bronze grating, its poles, all its utensils, the lava, its bases, the hangings of the court, its pillars, their sockets, the screen of the gate of the court, the pegs and the tabernacle, the pegs of the court and their cords, the garments, those would be important, right, for the priests of ministry, for ministering in the holy place, the holy garment for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons to minister as priests. Again, all these details were given earlier, back in 28 through 31. You see all the, and we went into those. Remember, we did that. But now they're, they're going to bring it all together. I, I like to apply this to, to like our work day last week where we, people, some people, you know, just come and do stuff. We did. We had a really successful day last Saturday. You might have noticed some things around here, planted or whatever. It was neat. We were outside, inside. But there are people that come during the week and they do things because they have the skill and they do. It's a blessing to do that. You can run a vacuum to the glory of God. You can pick up trash in the morning for the glory of God. You can. Anybody can do anything. You just have to be available. If you want to be blessed, just be a blessing. It's always that way, and it was that way for these people. And then notice here in verse 20, all the eager and willing servants, verse 20, and all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. So where are they going? Where are they going right now? They just heard what they're supposed to do. Where are they going? They're running to get their stuff. I love this. Everyone came whose heart was stirred. So now they're stirred up. Hey, what can I have? Let's go find stuff in the tent. Let's, I, I have extra gold. I have this. They're, they're, they're coming up with all this stuff. And everyone whose spirit was willing, and they brought to the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle for meeting, 
for all of its service and for the holy garments, they came, both men and women, as many had a willing heart. There's that thought there, willingness, eagerness, cheerfulness in giving, just willingness, to, a heart to give. They brought earrings and nose rings and nose rings. They wore nose rings. You thought it was something that it was, you just did it in the 90s and 2000s and 2018. I'm really hip and I've got a nose ring. No, this has been going on forever. <laughs> nose rings. They brought them to, to be used in the temple. And then every man, verse 23, who's found blue and purple and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair and red skins of rams and badger skins, they brought them. Everyone who offered, verse 24, an offering of silver or bronze brought the Lord's offering, and everyone with whom was found acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. All the women who were gifted artisans, they spun yarn with their hands, and they brought what they had spun. So they bring fabric, blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen. And all the women whose hearts stirred with wisdom, they spun yarn. I guess it must be a lot harder, right, to use goat's hair and make make a, a, a garment or, or a, a, a sheet out of goat's hair. The rulers, verse 27, they brought their expensive stones, onyx, a stone to be set in the ephod, the breastplate, and spices and oil for the light and anointing oil and the sweet incense. The children of Israel brought a free will offering to the Lord. And all the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring materials for all kinds of work which the Lord, by the hand of Moses, had commanded to be done. This is the way every church should work. This is the way our church should work as well. When there's an opportunity, you should serve. Wednesday night, big opportunity. Kermit's got a team that's just going to walk around and minister. They're going to head out tracks and ask people if they know Christ. Sally's going to have a little prayer tent. If you want to pray, you can meet with Sally and material. She's going to have a little prayer tent. She, people can go and pray with Sally over, I don't know where, she'll probably be under the patio here. Maybe you're good at picking up trash. You can come and serve. This, that's the whole idea. Let's serve. Let's serve and see what God does. Changing hearts, destroying the stronghold of Satan in this community. We have an opportunity to share the gospel, and that's what will break it down. It's the truth of the gospel. Or when I ask you to give gifts, and I'm going to do it pretty soon for Mexico, we, we, we give money, we go across the border, we buy gifts, and we go in and give to those, those children that we minister to all year. It's, it's a big ministry. We go to the work camps where they don't really see anybody. They're, they go in and they get fed, but they don't get a Bible. They don't get a track. They don't get a little dollar car at Christmas time with a Bible and a track and, and, and a missionary genie who says, Jesus loves you. And when you have those opportunities, you need to take them. Just like these people, their hearts are stirred. They're stoked. They're, they're running back through their tent and they're getting whatever they can so they can Add to the collection so that the tabernacle and the presence of God will be with them. Don't you love it? Wonderful. We're also going to do it just, just for your information. Um, the, our homeless uh, ministry, that we're going to do a, a Thanksgiving feeding the Sunday night before, the Sunday night before Thanksgiving. You can be a part of that. 
you, if you've never been a part of the homeless ministry, just go down there. You can bring a turkey that you make, and it can be used that night. Bring some canned food. We're going to have canned food drive. It'll, you'll hear about it Sunday. So you can make a can, can of something. If that's all you have is wood, then bring it. Maybe, but maybe you can do a turkey or a ham or something. Or maybe you can go down and cut it and be a part of serving. We're going to be a part of that as a church to help the homeless in our area, feeding people in the name of Jesus. So there's opportunities. When they come, you should take advantage. Both men and women here, their hearts were stirred, and they jumped right in. Everyone brought a free will offering to the Lord. Whenever I read it, I get excited because I, when I ask you, you guys always respond, and it's, it's exciting. I just love it. So now, as we move through the narrative, we come to chapter 35. All of the planning has been done, chapter 30, uh, 28 through 31, for the tabernacle and all the furnishings and all the gold and the poles and all the di dimensions of everything. They've all been laid for. Now all the people have brought all this stuff. It's mounting up. They're piling up all this stuff so they can build the, the tabernacle here. The, the people, they're all excited about it. The, the artisans have come together, the women that are sewing and, and, and embroidering, and, and everyone's coming together now. That's what we're seeing here. And then we get this special man. We've met him before, but here in, in uh, uh, verse 30 of chapter 35 through the first two verses in 36, notice, Moses said to the children of Israel, see, the Lord has called by name Betzaal. Real quick story, I, uh, Esther and I met with and had lunch with uh, Shalom. Uh, Shalom Almog is the tour. He owns the company Corel Travel and Tours, and we've gone to Israel twice with him. And our Greek trip in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul last, uh, when was that, March, um, he organized that as well. And he comes out to the, he speaks at Calvary's. He, I didn't have him speak here because he could do Sunday night. He did a big church on Sunday morning. So I said, hey, let's just meet for lunch. I'd love to see you. So we went down to Olive Garden and we had lunch with, Shalom, and I said, Shalom, I had just taught uh, Betzaal, and I said, is this a common name? And he said, yeah, he's, he's Jewish, he, he was, you know, he's 80, I don't know, how old is he, he's 80, 85, or he's 85, 86 years old, my wife's not sure either. He's, he's just a really neat man, and, and he's, you know, obviously speaks Hebrew, he's Jewish. So I said, well, how do you pronounce the name? Because I blow these names all the time, and he says, no, that's right, Betzaal. Betzaal, the way he said it was really nice. But this man, we've met him before. Notice what it says here. He's the son of Uri and the son of somebody you should know, her of the tribe of Judah. And he was filled, he filled him with the spirit of God and wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship. So here's the main architect. Here's the main artist to build the tabernacle. His name is Betzaal. I, I called him Betzaal the Builder with apologies to Bob, remember my, my title? Betzaal the Builder here. And he's going to do this work here. Notice verse 32, to design the artistic works, the work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting and carving wood, and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. He must have been amazing. Verse 34, and he has put, God has put in his heart the ability to teach others to do the artistic work. And one is named Oliab here, the son of Ishmash, 
of the tribe of Dan, and he was or has filled them with skill to do the manner of work of the engraver, the designer, the tapestry maker in blue, purple, scarlet thread, the fine linen, the weaver, those who do the every work and those who design the artistic works. And then the first verse of chapter 36, and Betzaal and Aholab, and every gifted artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. Then, verse 2, Moses called Betzaal and Aholab, and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred to come and to do the work. Now again, this man, Betzaal the builder, he was the chosen craftsman. He must have been amazing with jewels and carving. He must have been highly gifted. The scriptures make that really clear. His name means in or under the shadow of God. Betzaal means under the shadow of God. So he was under the protection of God. He was under the sight of God. God was protecting him, preserving him, and God had gifted him. And he's the grandson of her. Her, as you'll recall, her, is, he's, we see her in, in uh, Joshua. When Joshua was fighting the battle, it was Aaron and her that held up Moses' arms. Because Moses held his arms up and, and the, the Amalekites were winning the war. If Moses' arms went down, he got tired. He's an old man. He got tired. with, it. And so her held one up and they held his arms up. And when his arms were up, they prevailed. So Hur was a godly man, and Hur taught his son Uri and his grandson Betzaal. And so that, they have this heritage. I love that about heritage. Fathers, you have a heritage. What are you leaving behind? You're training your children? Teaching them the ways of God? Or did you just send them to some university to learn a skill and make money? It's our job as parents to make sure our kids know and love the Lord. That's much more important. Betzael has this great heritage from his grandpa, Hur. In Exodus 31, verse 3, look at this scripture behind me. It says the same thing, just confirming what we've read. And I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship. So this man was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was prepared for this ministry by the spirit of, of God. And so he and his assistant, this Oholiab, they are going to work together and make sure that the artistic uh, elements of the tabernacle are going to be done and beautifully, skillfully done. Then notice here, we read this earlier, but I, I love this, the generous giving of the people. And they received, verse 3, from Moses, all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued to bring to him free will offerings every day, every morning. Then all the craftsmen, and remember, there's 2 million people. I mean, the line would be long, right? So they're, they're coming day after day. This big long line of people, thousands a day, thousands, tens of thousands of people lining up to bring their stuff. Okay, and, and, and it's Betzaal and Oliab who are, okay, put that over there. Gold goes over here. You know, people are bringing. I mean, think about it, how hard that would be to organize. And they're bringing it day after day. Two million people are going to start bringing stuff. It's coming every morning, verse 10. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, 
So these guys, they know each other. They're from some kind of guild. They, they work together. They've probably done other things. And they come uh, from the work he was doing, and they spoke to Moses saying, the people, the people are bringing too much. Moses, stop these people. I love this. We, we have enough for the service of the work of the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave the commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp. Tell everybody, stop. Neither let man or woman do any more work for the offering. Don't bring anything else here. And the people were restrained from bringing, for the material that they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. Indeed, too much, Moses adds. What a blessing. This, they're excited. These people are amped. They're bringing everything they can. They're, they're excited about the ministry. It's Wednesday night, you should be pumped. We're going we're gonna to reach out to the community. And, and God knows who he's going to bring here. Let's get excited about it and let's serve in a, in a way that makes an impact on, on some of these kids that come. Again, these guys, Bethel and Oholiab there, his name just freaks me out. They, they were the ones that organized. They were the ones that put the material in the different piles and they're the ones that say, hey, we, we've got more than enough, verse 5. So they were asked to stop the people, to delay in their giving, to stop their giving. Maybe they had second thoughts. The people that came late. I, I'm thinking about those people that came late. Just think about this. Maybe in their tent the first couple of days, you know, we're told to bring stuff, and boy, the neighbors are empty in their garage, and this, he emptied his tent shed. You know, it's all gone. I wonder, when should I give? What should we give? And maybe they were a little apprehensive about giving away their gold or their wood. Maybe. And so now they come too late and they can't give it. Think about that. What? You won't take my offering? What? Mine's not good enough? Well, we have plenty. You, you were either at the back of the line or you waited too long. What a ripoff, huh? When there's an opportunity, church, we should jump on it. We should be a part of it. We should help out. Otherwise, what a disappointment for these people. They, their offering was really turned away because they came too late. Kind of, I could say something about people coming late to worship, but I won't tonight. I won't say that. <laughs> now, let me show you a picture real quick here of the tabernacle. This is the tabernacle that's being built. This is just another cutaway version. Notice the top of it. Multiple layers. You have the outer layer that's, that's brown and the red. You'll hear about the red layer. And the multiple layers. And then inside, you see the structure, all the wood. There's two rooms. The, the back of this shows the veil. There's a screen in the front. There's a veil in the back. The veil is very thick. It has that purple fabric, as you see there, blue and purple. And it has angels or cherubim artistically embroidered on it and the, the two different uh, uh, compartments of the tabernacle, the, the holy place and then the holy of holies, which is way in the back there, that little portion way, way in the back. Now, in Exodus 25, we're told the size, it's, it's only 15 feet wide, 15 feet. So my span's six. 15 feet, so about from there to here. 15 feet wide, 45 feet long. And then it was, I, I think, like 12 feet high. So it's not that big a building. It could fit in here. It's not that huge. 
but they covered everything with gold. They were, they were gorgeous, stun- I mean, this is a stunning, it's a stunning building. The effort it takes is st- the artisans and all those things. But it's a stunning building. Now, outside, this sat in a courtyard. And do I have a picture of the courtyard? The courtyard, I've shown you this picture. Um, There's the 15 by 45 building way down at the end. In the front, uh, the white linen, it would have been a white linen curtain that delineated the court. And in the court is where the sacrifices were done. You, You walk through the first veil and you come right to the altar of sacrifice. Big, remember, it was a big, massive square box covered with, with bronze. And that's where they would take the animal that was brought in. They would kill it right in the front. Blood would flow. They'd throw the animal. They'd burn it. And that, was the, that, that just reminded the people that they're coming into the presence of God. They've got to deal with sin, and it's going to cost something. And it was the lifeblood of the animal. They couldn't come near God without that sacrifice because they're sinful. And then they got closer and closer, and the priest would wash in the lava. You can see it behind, and then they would go. The priest would go, and weekly, we talked about this last week, and we've shared this on Wednesday night as well, but the priest would go into weekly, or daily, actually, Aaron, the high priest would go in daily to, to make sure the lamp was lit. It had to stay lit in there. And then there was the showbread weekly. So daily, lamp, weekly showbread. And then once a year back into the Holy of Holies where the mercy seat and the ark was. So this was a very important structure, but there's kind of the layout of the whole structure. That's what they're building with all the materials that are that are coming in. And then there's all these furnishings. There's there's the uh, inside the holy place, you have the candelabra, the golden candelabra, you have the the uh, uh, table of showbread that was very ornate. And then the altar of incense that burned continually. And then behind the veil, you had the, the Ark of the Covenant, two by three box with a mercy seat and the cherubim. You can see it there in that picture. And then on the outside where all the, you know, the, the altar sacrifice and all the laver and all those things, there were utensils. There were knives and lots of knives, lots and lots of knives, tongs and different things to divide up the animal, carve it up and all. So all those utensils were going to be made uh, in, in this. That's what's being made here in, in this chapter. Now notice in the beginning of verse 8 here, uh, almost to the end of the book, is this is the, the construction of the tabernacle. That's why I've taken these two verses or chapters really quickly together. Then all the gifted artisans among them who worked on the tabernacle made ten curtains of woven and fine linen and a blue, purple, scarlet thread. So it's layered. It's, it's not just all the same, different colors thread. You have a, a blue, uh, this beautiful fabric that you can almost see through and the colors that would be layered together as the candelabra was burning in that room. They would see the different layers. A beautiful, beautiful room. And the length of each curtain was 28 cubits and the width Cubit, remember, is the span from your fingertips to your forearm. That's a cubit, so you can figure that out. And the width of each curtain, four cubits, the curtains were all the same size. So Betziel, filled with the Spirit now, he's going to embroider these beautiful cherubim on these curtains that are inside, hanging on the inside of that, the tabernacle there, which depicts a beautiful heavenly scene, blue, 
sky blue with the effervescence of purple and different fabric colors, and then you have cherubim. God's on a throne in heaven. He's surrounded by cherubim. It's kind of a, and God's going to come into the tabernacle. He's going to dwell in there, and you have this blue and cherubim. It's kind of a beautiful picture of heaven. And then verse 10, and he coupled five curtains to one another, and the other five curtains he coupled to one another. And he made loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain and the, uh, the salvage of one set. Likewise, he did to the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set. Fifty loops he made on one curtain, fifty loops he made on the other edge of the curtain. And the end of the second, the loops held one curtain to another. And he made fifty clasps of gold and coupled the curtains to one another with a clasp that it might be one tabernacle. So the clasps, the loops, the, the poles, all the things you're going to see in here, they were to make the tabernacle mobile. This has to move. It has to be torn down and moved when God wants them to move to a new location until they get to the promised land. And they're going to be wandering for how many years? So they've got to take this down. Can you imagine to be a part of that group? We always get bummed out when we've got to move these chairs over here, when the women have their, that's happening too in December, right? When is that happening? The 7th of December. So I need a bunch of men. We're going to move all these pews over here so that women can do all their, so we're doing the same kind of things. So I, I'm just, just priming you guys. We need help to do that. That'll be a Wednesday night, by the way. And so all of these things were made so that the tabernacle would be mobile. That's the whole idea here. And the interior lab, uh, layers are beautiful. And, and then the outer layers, they're waterproof. Notice this. He made curtains of goat's hair, verse 14, for the tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits, and the width of each curtain were four cubits. The 11 curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost uh, in one set. And 50 loops he made on the edge of the curtain for the second set. And he also made 50 bronze clasps to couple the tent together that it might be one. Then he made a covering for the tent of ram skins, dyed red, and the covering of badger skins above that. So the the ram skins and the badger skins, those were the waterproof layers. So the water can't get inside because this is going to be out, outside. It's a, a, a tent on the outside. Now in verses 20 through 34 here, we get the structure, all the interior boards and all. What holds this tent up? The, these, it's not just stakes. This isn't just aluminum poles. This very elaborate wooden structure, verse 20, the tabernacle he made boards of acacia wood standing upright. The length of each board was 10 cubits. The width of each board is a cubit and a half. Each board has two tenons for binding one another. That's kind of a cool way to build with tenons. Thus he made for all the boards of the tabernacle, he made boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side, 40 sockets of silver he made to go under the boards. So they have an anchor. They're, they're 250 pounds, each one of these silver anchors that the boards went into. It's very elaborate, very sturdy structure. Uh, verse 25, and for the other side of the tabernacle, the north side, he made 20 boards, and there are 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. For the west side of the tabernacle, he made six 
boards, he also made two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. Verse 29, and they were coupled at the bottom and coupled together at the top by a ring. Thus he made both of them for the two corners. So there were eight boards and their sockets, 16 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. And he made bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side to the tabernacle, five bars for the board so you can carry it. That's what the bars are for. Uh, verse 33, and he made the middle bar to pass through the boards from one end to the other. That would tie them together. He overlaid the boards with gold and made their rings and gold and holders of bars and overlaid the bars with gold. So all these boards were covered with gold. The poles were gold. The rings were gold. I mean, this is a very elaborate and substantial uh, structure here. The joints had tenon jointery. The the heavy silver anchors on the bottom. So, I, I mean, if, if you've ever been out into the high desert and the wind's blowing 60 miles an hour, you know how substantial a tent needs to be. And God's made this tent very, very substantial. And then in verse 35 to 38, we get the screen and the veil. He made a veil of blue, purple, scarlet thread, so the same as the interior, a fine woven linen. It, has, it was worked with the artistic design of cherubim. So Betsiah would have, would have put that artistic angel in there. He made it for four pillars of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold, with their hooks of gold, and he cast four sockets of silver for them. He also made a screen for the door of the blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine woven, made of, by a weaver. And it's five pillars with their hooks and he overlaid their capitals and their rings with gold, but their five sockets were bronze. So the, the two curtains described, again, we can show you that, that tabernacle picture again, the one with the cutaway view. You'll see here there's a veil or the screen in the front. It's called a screen, but it was like a door going inside to the tabernacle. And then, do you have that picture? Uh, the other one. So the, the, if down in the bottom right-hand corner, the, you see the stripe, the red stripes and the blue. That's the screen that was made to go in, and only the, the priest could go in there daily to, for oil, weekly for showbread. And then the veil was in way in the back. It's the one way in the back, right in front of the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant there in the picture. The veil separated that first room the holy room from the holy of holies where God's presence was. So very substantial uh, a structure here. And the, the curtains are important. The curtains represent separation, separation from God. Sin separates man from God. And these curtains here separated the holiness of God from the sinful man. Even the priest was considered sinful. He had to sacrifice before he could go into the Holy of Holies. He, and he could only go there once uh, every year. So this structure is very important. The veil is important, providing separation. Here's the way I'm going to end the study tonight. When Jesus died on the cross... The veil of the temple, and we're not talking the tabernacle, but this same structure you're looking at here, intense structure, was later built 
as a solid stone structure. It still had the two separations, but there was a veil. And the veil of separation was torn on the day that Jesus died. You know the story. You know the, the whole beautiful picture of Christ's sacrifice. And the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom, providing access directly to God. Jesus and his death provided access. His blood was the perfect sacrifice for your sin, for my sin. And there's no longer separation. It's Ephesians 2. Here's the final verse of the night. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Speaking of this veil, speaking of Christ's work on the cross so that you and I have access to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for this, this scripture. Lord, we read a lot, these two chapters, but there's so much here. And we thank you for uh, the record that we're reading. And I just pray, Lord, that we as your people would, would see from the generous giving of the people the artistic creation and building of the tabernacle and all of the wonderful elements that it represents, the beauty and the holiness, the, the um, fact that you would be dwelling with your people in that tabernacle with them. Lord, that's your heart. And God, we're so grateful that you sent your son and provided a way for us to have access directly with you. There's no veil of separation because of the blood of Jesus Christ. How grateful we are. So tonight we rejoice in that and we thank you. And Lord, I just want to tonight pray with these, your people, for next Wednesday night. We ask God that you would use our efforts to bring children and even parents to Jesus Christ. That you would prepare hearts right now Lord, as, as we open up our grounds and facility to, to the neighbors, I don't know what's in their heart except for sin. I don't know who's saved and who's not, but we want to make sure they hear the gospel. So, Lord, use our church, use our grounds for your purpose and your glory, and we'll give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.